And we'll be in Matthew 16 today uh, for the message. We are in a nine-week series, uh, really unpacking the three loves there on the wall. We love God together, we love our church family together, and we love our neighbor together. And this is the first Sunday of moving into loving our neighbor together. We've entitled this series, The Covenant Community. Um, I just want to give a preface to this whole thing. We have endeavored... um, to build a culture of commitment here at Providence since day one. I've just felt after being a pastor for 25 years, you can't really do anything without commitment. Uh, commitment and covenant is the core of all of life. And if you look at all the great movements in the world, it was always done by a committed, sold-out group of people. Uh, if I, I study cultures for fun, and if you look at like the culture of the American military, they have a, they have a really strong culture of commitment. They... Uh, wear uniforms, they get up early, they go through rigorous training, they're committed to one another. But why? Because their mission really deeply matters. Uh, then uh, I was reading an article this week by Dr. Scott Atron on why uh, young people are actually joining ISIS. And he basically says the lure of ISIS is there's an adventure, a cause, and a message that gives young people significance. And we don't have that today because our young people are alienated from their leaders and they don't believe in them. People are looking for something they can sink their teeth into and commit to, whether it's um, good or evil. Sadly, in the Christian world, I think this is probably our biggest problem. American Christianity, by and large, is a non-committed faith. Uh, There's very little idea of accountability. There's very little idea of authority. There's very little idea of commitment to a local church for a long period of time. But if you look at the history of the church... The Moravians launched revivals and missionaries around the world, a little small group of people. The Methodists, as I talked about a couple weeks ago, that their fire took off in small groups around America, and a third of America went into their small group ministry. They built a culture around values, and they make an impact. If you look in the Christian community for like really strong cultures, um, you actually talk about it in the Christian church today and people all automatically think you're a cult if you have any type of commitment. Uh, amen. <laughs> yes. Um, my son, um, you know, told me, Dad, I, I want to go to a monastery for a while and see if maybe God wants me to be a monk. That was a surprising conversation with his mom and I. Uh, but I took him down a couple weeks ago to a monastery in Canyon City and, you know, the monks there, there is a culture. It is a culture of commitment. I mean, you get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, have a church service. Then you have a church service at noon. Then you have a church service at night every single day. You read your prayers before and after the meals. Uh, and, uh, and then if you actually make a commitment to be a monk, uh, you, you can't even make the commitment for three years. But then if you make the commitment, you are committed to be a monk for the rest of your life at that facility, right? That's not a cult. That's just highly covenanted community in the Christian world. If you look, uh, if you go to the urban kind of examples, you can go to Chicago, there's the Jesus people. They all get together. They live in the same house. They have a common purse. There's no private property. And they're learning to live together. That's not a cult. That's just deep covenanted Christian community. We're actually trying at Providence here to kind of like you get the monastery on one side and you get like kind of an urban common pot type uh, covenanted community. We're probably trying to be right there in the middle. We all still have our own jobs and we 
Um, but we come together and we're trying to actually frame a basic commitment what holds us together. Contrary to most churches where you can just go and consume and sit there and take in a service, you know, once a week and call that church. It's just not church. That is a service of the church. It's a gathering of the church. But the church is a group of people committed to one another for life. Sadly, even when we talk about this commitment, we get pushed back here. Uh, and, and people say, that, that's too much or that's, that's cultish or whatever. All we're asking people to do is make a commitment to those three things. Loving God together, that's gathering together. Loving our church family together, being a small group. And loving our neighbor together. That's, that's the basics of the Christian life. And we want to do life with those who want to do the basics and who want to do it well. So um, we have to, we're reframing the commitment here uh, around uh, post-pandemic. There's three ways you can actually be involved and committed here at Providence. One is a congregant. You say, hey, this is my church. I attend weekend services, um, but I have limited participation in other areas of the church. Or we have a lot of committed participants. They're involved in one or more of those three loves uh, they're engaged with the life of the body. But then we have the covenant partner. This is the big commitment. Uh, they actually say, I want to be committed to all three loves. I want to be held accountable to actually do those in my life. I'm going to agree to the covenant, the statement of faith. And I'm submitted to this body and to this leadership. And uh, we have said post-pandemic, we want everybody to decide like where they sit in those levels of commitments. And uh, you can, if you're a covenant partner, you say, that's not for me anymore. Just let us know. Uh, but we'll start talking about that more in the next two weeks. But essentially, this nine weeks is just about re actually re-clarifying rung number three, what a covenant partner really does and what we mean by that. And we feel it is the way to live your Christian life and not just be an involved Christian. You know, everybody's involved at their church. But like how Lou Holtz talked about that, he goes, you're like the kamikaze pilot who flew 50 missions. You were involved, but you were never really committed, right? Uh, kamikazes should not fly 50 missions. Uh, I didn't say be a kamikaze here, but I just want to make sure that's clear. But. So I was thinking about how do I kick off Love Your Neighbor, and we have talked about this a lot because we launched a non We said at the beginning of this church, if you're going to be part of the church and you're a member, you have to be involved in the neighborhood or you can't join. Just go to the other place where you can sit and be comfortable. But if you're going to be here, we believe a, a small group of people can make an impact in loving our neighbor. And that is out of which then the, the cross-purpose ministry has grown, which now has over a thousand neighbors have gotten out of poverty with that work. Uh, and now it's expanding other places of the city. That happened, I think, because 15 years ago, we sat in a room like this and said, are we all committed to really loving our neighbor and not just doing tokenism charity, you know, serving turkey once a year, giving backpacks away. And so I think I'm still of the same belief 15 years later. You only need 50 people who are really committed to a mission to really change things. So as I think about what message to preach, uh, I kept going back to this passage here, and it doesn't really talk about loving your neighbor. Uh, because I think we have a problem before we get there, actually. Jesus says in verse 24, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. One author I read said, there are few words that Jesus ever spoke that are scarier than these here. When Jesus says, come dine with me, most of us say, yeah, Jesus, I'm going to come eat with you. When Jesus says, come do life with me, we want to go experience life with Jesus. When he says, come dance with me, we want to go experience joy with Jesus. When Jesus says, come die with me, take up your cross, almost all of us are just like Peter in what Rochelle read. Never, Lord. 
Don't do that, Jesus, when he says he's going to die. I, I like the parts of Jesus that I like that reinforce my lifestyle, that leave me feeling spiritual without any cost. I can wear the cross as jewelry, but never bear it as a disciple. I can have life the way I want it and keep the self I have. But at Providence, I want to say, we do not want that life. We do not want that self. We want a better self than that. I was looking at this board game in the 1950s called Going to Jerusalem. 1955, okay? Going to Jerusalem. You see the first is Bethlehem, right? And then you go to the Mount of Olives. And I don't know if you can see that real well, but what's wrong with the game? Yeah, and where's the cross, right? It ends in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We are going to Jerusalem, and it's, the, it's Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Folks, that was the, the triumph before death, right? I just think, actually, this is how the Christian church kind of views itself. We want to go to Jerusalem, but we don't want to go to Calvary. And Jesus says, we need to flat out deny ourselves, neighbors are not going to be loved. We are not going to abolish racism in this neighborhood unless we first say we're going to deny ourselves. What is he talking about when he says deny yourself? This is the natural, sinful, rebellious, unredeemed flesh. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, it is corrupted uh, in accordance with the lust of deceit. So this is uh, all the badness inside of me that says don't take time off to go love your neighbor, uh, just chill, right? That, that's, that's a lust of the flesh, right? The Bible says you have to deny this in yourself. This is instead of what's popular today is loving yourself, right? The Bible never, ever says to love yourself. And I don't say that to say that I'm actually against what people are talking when they talk about loving yourself. The disciples of Jesus, you should have the best self-image of anybody in the world, you should view yourself. You should accept God's love for you. This, this idea where people say they have to forgive themselves, I think it's fundamentally, they actually haven't accepted the forgiveness of God for what they've done in their life. I wrote this down in my study. You have to grapple with the worst version of yourself before you can feel good about becoming the best version of yourself. Everybody's talking about the best, I want to be the best version of myself, right? I have people that get caught up in sin and like, Pastor, I, I did this, but that wasn't me. No, that was you. That was your flesh. And you have to crucify that thing. Because just to say your you're split personality and say that's not me is not going to get you anywhere. But accept God's love for you. Accept his forgiveness. Accept how God made you and your family and your place in history. And also take care of yourself. If, if you say, I'm going to love myself, I'm going to take a Sabbath, that's biblical a way to take care of yourself, physically, emotionally, mentally. Sabbath your life. But I'm afraid that the Love Yourself movement has actually promoted this like selfie culture, where now we see narcissism on the rise and really a lack of true focus on others. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 2 says, the bad times are coming in the last days. People will be in love with themselves. And this has permeated the church. Can I tell you, yourself that he's talking about here is a beast. I like that Johnny Cash song, The Beast in Me. We all have this beast in us, this unredeemed flesh. 
And the word here says you must deny it, to completely disown it, to utterly separate yourself from it. Learn to sabotage every plan that yourself presents to you. Sabotage that baby. The Bible says mortify your flesh according to his deceitful lusts. I like how Ray Orland talked about it. He said, in your heart, it's really like a boardroom. And sitting on the boardroom of your life in this fancy room is the table of your heart. And there sitting at the table is your social self, your private self, your work self, your sexual self, your recreational self, your religious self, and others. And that committee is always arguing about what you should be doing in your life. They're constantly agitated and they're upset. They rarely come to unanimous decisions. So you have to decide then, when you decide to be a follower of Jesus and deny yourself, where do you want Jesus to sit in the boardroom? Ortland says one way is invite him onto the committee and give him a vote. That's not Christianity. (laughs) Because Jesus gets vetoed more often than not. The other way is you say to Jesus, hey, my life's not working. Can you come in and fire my board? Fire the boardroom. You, everybody else goes and you hand yourself over to Jesus. He is your king and he will run your whole life. This is what's needed. We need to fire that flesh. C.S. Lewis often gives nice, comfy Christian quotes. But this one I read this week was a little different. Give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half-hearted measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but I want it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself and my own will shall become yours. This is what denying yourself is all about. Take care of yourself but deny that flesh. And then he says this, take up your cross. What was the cross? Within the church today, people often give this phrase, oh man, my mother-in-law is driving me crazy. That's just my cross to bear. You ever hear that? Or my knee is going out on me. It's my cross to bear. Or the Wi-Fi here is weak. It is my cross to bear. Can I remind you what the cross was? It was not symbolic of a burden that you carried. It only meant one thing, and that was death by the most painful and humiliating way possible. When he was saying this, everybody knew what he meant by cross. Because a century earlier, Alexander Janius crucified 800 Jewish rebels in Jerusalem. Uh, After the death of Herod the Great, 2,000 Jews were crucified by the Roman proconsul. It was estimated that perhaps during the lifetime of Christ alone, 30,000 people died on crosses. 30,000 in that small little country. I like how one pastor says, he goes, when he's talking about taking up your cross, it's a death march. So this gospel of health and wealth is actually heresy. The idea that, that there's, uh, he's the God of getting. He's this genie who gives you everything that you want and every whim uh, at your disposal. 
The true gospel closes the door on health and wealth. It is not because you don't have enough faith to claim the blessings of God that your life is the way it is. This idea of taking up your cross puts a bullet into the health and wealth gospel. And folks, this is not a mere suggestion. He says in Matthew 10, 38, if you do not take up the cross, you are not worthy of me. So in a world where success is the measure and justification of all things, Bonhoeffer says, the figure of him who is sentenced and crucified remains a stranger. Bonhoeffer's cost of discipleship was all about this. We have believed in cheap grace. We have the, we have the crown, but we don't have a, a theology for the cross. We have, a, we have a theology of glory, but not a theology of suffering. Clarence Jordan, who wrote the Cotton Patch New Testament translation, and he, he found one of these interracial uh, communities called Quinnia Farm in Georgia. Another pastor was giving him a tour of his brand new church, and uh, he was pointing out the new pastor was to the rich imported pews and the luxurious decorations in the church. And as they stepped outside, the, the, it was getting dark outside, and he looked up and he goes, look at the cross on top of that steeple. He said, that cross alone cost us $10,000. And Jordan said to him, he goes, man, you got cheated. Times were when Christians could get those for free. What has the church become where it's all about the luxury, the platform, the celebrity pastor there, the, the amount of likes and followers, the fancy shoes, uh, who he, who's going to his church? This is, this is not the way of the gospel. So deny yourself, take up your cross, and he says, then follow me. And then he says, if you do that, you think you're going to lose your life, but you'll save it. This is the great exchange. And he goes, and what does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? The rhetorical question there is nothing. It doesn't profit you anything to gain the whole world and lose your own soul. And that is what's at stake here. Uh, the guy uh, who owns Hobby Lobby, he wrote a book on generous giving, and he talked about most people think um, of their life like the Monopoly game. And as you start thinking about Monopoly, what a horrible game Monopoly actually is. <laughs> you know, you walk around, whoever gets there first gets to buy the property. You try to get all the properties. You try to put the rents there. You try to hike up all the rents with hotels, and you want everybody else to go bankrupt. I mean, it's like the worst game possible when you think about how it treats human beings. And he's like, most people kind of live their lives that way. He goes, but the true way of the cross, the true way of, of, of giving, he says, your life is more like Uno or Crazy Eights. You want to get rid of all the cards first. You want to deploy every card you have because at the end of the day, every card in your hand counts against you. Wouldn't it be great if we thought of our lives that way? Every ounce of energy we had left, every dollar in our pocket that we had when we died counts against us. We thought about Wall Street when it collapsed uh, in 2008 because of toxic assets. That's when the, the loan instruments were no longer uh, worth anything. And the more toxic assets that were on the bank's books is what caused the whole collapse. And I'm afraid that in the church, if we don't deny ourselves and take up our cross, we have a bunch of toxic assets that we're not using for the sake of the world. So when I say this, though, what does this actually mean for your Monday? What does deny yourself and take up your cross actually mean? I think you could take this and I, I would put one category as what I call sin management. Deny yourself, take up your cross, quit looking at porn, right? 
Uh, quit, quit just sitting on Amazon all day and just buying all these things, being a consumer, right? Sin management, deny yourself, take up your cross. I think most Christian preaching is in this bucket of denying yourself means to manage your sin problems. There is an implication here for martyrdom, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And he's actually getting ready to go to the cross. But there's probably nobody in this room who's facing the real prospect of martyrdom before they die. So what, what, how do you really, in this culture, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus? I want to make a case that being involved in loving your neighbor and injustice work is the best way as an American Christian to deny yourself and take up your cross in today's world. Because it is the only way I know to actually go against the tide that is hitting us in this culture. And I want to make a case for justice. Fifteen years ago when we started Providence, we basically said, everybody that goes here, if you're going to be part of this church, you have to be involved in the community. And we don't care what you do, but you must be involved in loving your neighbor. And I knew after passing for 11 years, a bunch of people would come up to me and go, um, hey, uh, Jason, I, I have a heart for that, but what do I do? I don't know where to go. And I knew we'd have to create ministries. And so we just preached uh, as hard as we could and said, go. And we were right across the street from the homeless park at Sunny Lawson. And people, a homeless person would come on in and they needed a place to stay. And we'd just stand up on Sunday morning and say, we need to give this guy a place to stay. Who's got money for down payment on rent? That's how we did church in the early days, right? And then we started ministries and we start seeing fatherless kids in the neighborhood. And so we started this ministry called Encompass. I'm actually picked up the original flyer of Encompass from 2010. We called it our core program. We were going to do connection programs, connection events, and have a core program and mentor. And we were going to look at poverty from a financial, relational, physical, emotional, educational, spiritual lens. Does that look familiar? It's essentially the paradigm of cross-purpose today, 15 years later. And this was just for single moms. And the reason the logo around the core program, that little blue and, and green messy circles, because a single mom was sitting in our, our kitchen, and she was kind of like taking her hoodie string and wrapping it on her finger. And she said, I think the logo ought to look like the end of my hoodie string here. It's all frayed. And she said, because I think when we encompass all the single moms, like it's really messy, right? That's the logo of encompass, this circle around people in the middle of the mess. Then uh, we started going up to Sterling Correctional Facility and we started a ministry called Strong Tower. And that's our building there called the Sea. And on Thursday nights, we'd have a church service for men and women coming out of incarceration. We knew nothing about single moms ministry. We knew nothing about fatherless kids ministry. And we knew nothing about prison aftercare. But there was a committed group of people. And it was crazy and fun, a little wild, and pretty unconventional. Our church insurance called us and canceled us because they said, we can't cover you anymore. You do things churches don't do. It was the greatest compliment I feel in the first five years of our church. Uh, and then I had to call around and find out who would insure us, right? It was then that I realized that 2,000 refugees were placed in this city every single year. And we did Thanksgiving baskets. And I sat in the home over at the Daly Apartments with a family. And, uh, you know, they were from uh, the Congo, where I had actually been on a missions trip. And I actually called Joanna's family and had them interpret a conversation for me in that living room. And just out of that then, we, we formed as a church. We formed as a church around issues of justice. 
because it pushed on, it made us deny ourselves and take up a cross. What does the Lord require of you, it says, to love mercy, to do justice, and walk humbly with thy, thy God? But right now, we actually live in a culture of wealth in this country. We can avoid martyrdom, and we can just resort to a Christianity of sin management and religious observances and call it good. But folks, there is a world in need. Amen. You just got to walk out this door. You just got to walk downtown. You just got to show up at the elementary school. How in the world can we just tolerate a religion of sin management and religious observances? Denying yourself and taking up your cross, I believe, has at the core of it in the American church a, a need for justice. In the Bible, it talks about, uh, in theology, we call it the quartet of the oppressed. They are the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, and the poor. And if you get involved with any of those communities, you're going to be confronted with your own life and your need to do justice. How does uh, Keller define justice? We do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Doing justice includes not only the righting of wrongs, this is the Hebrew word mishpat, but generosity and social concern, especially toward the poor and vulnerable. This kind of life reflects the character of God. It consists of a broad range of activities from simple, fair, and honest dealings with people in daily life to regular, radically generous giving of your time and resources to activism that seeks to end particular forms of injustice, violence, and oppression. Folks, the world needs it. It needs you to deny yourself and pick up a cross and, and put yourself on it. And I think love of neighbor does all of this. In fact, love of neighbor forms you. Uh, the Liddens in this room and the Gosseviches take, take foster kids into their home. I don't know. My wife and I have done that for a number of years. I don't know of anything that's more of a bloody cross than taking a traumatized child who's been neglected and abused and try to give them a nourishing home environment inside your own home. It pushes on everything about you. Your individualism, your hunger for entertainment, your materialism, your isolationism, your overcommitted recreation. We spend so much time and energy in this culture on sports, and, 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 and the quartet of the oppressed is not getting any better. I think they're toxic assets. Josh Larson came to me, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and said, hey, a lot of the kids in my son's class don't have dads, and that really burdens me. I think we should do something, and I think the Lord's calling me to do something. And Jason, I think the Lord's calling you to do something with me, you know, because your house is between the two high schools. And I was like, hey, uh, I, didn't, I don't need one more thing to do. But uh, Jen's sitting there, and she goes, I don't know how we could say no to helping you, Josh. Let's go do it. And I was like, yeah, but he's asking me to do it, not you. You get to stay at work. <laughs> so we formed this lunch club, and these kids come over, and, you know, we feed them wings, and I'm telling you, there's so we had eight this past week from Cole. And uh, it's called the TBD Club right now, To Be Determined, because we haven't determined the name. And uh, these kids are to be determined, right? But I got to tell you, I mean, I have four sons that went to all these schools, but I really don't know how to hang with 10th grade and 9th grade boys from Cole. I, my, my son, Spurgeon, tells me what to wear on the Wednesday and what not to wear, Right? Uh, he tells me uh, what words to use and not to use, what radio station to play. 
I'm supposed to use words like dope and lit and yeet and <laughs> turned up. It's not turned up. It's turned up, you know. And uh, I, I'm so uncomfortable. I do not know how to connect to these guys. I don't know what flex means, you know. I don't know what facts are, all that stuff. And you know what? And it costs money. Like the Chick-fil-A bill on Wednesday was 111 bucks. That's money. It's real money. I have other things I'd rather spend 111 bucks on. I mean, they devoured it in like six minutes. And I was like, it's gone, $111, just like that. I'm uncomfortable. I, I, I really don't want to take time off work to go do it. I told my wife yesterday, I said, I'd rather be at work. I know how to do my work. I know how to do my job. I don't know how to do this. Thursday night, we're taking them all up to the Unser Racing go-karts, you know. I'm going to have some fun. And I'm, I'm just praying, God, let me connect with a couple of them at a heart level. What does that do? It's, it's, it's denying ourselves, taking up our cross. And you know what we do? We're taking on, we say take on the cross, we're taking on the suffering of another person. And sadly in our culture, you can volunteer to do that or choose not to do that. But people who are suffering have no choice. I like that quote, the pinnacle, we put in the, in the staff wing, the pinnacle of Christian leadership is to climb up on a bloody cross and take responsibility for the brokenness in your neighborhood. But we have lived such controlled lives that that for us is risky. But I say if you do this and you push into justice, your Bible will make sense and it will heal the world. Why am I preaching on this? Because self-love is killing our neighbors. I regularly get told as a CEO of Cross Purpose that the ally commitment uh, every Wednesday night for six months is really hard. And I just want to go in, how much time have you spent on the soccer field with your third, third grader? Right? I'm not against your kid playing soccer, but don't tell me six months of Wednesday nights is a really hard commitment. We're not going to change the systems of injustice and oppression by six months of Wednesday nights. That's just the gateway drug, folks. There are 73 or 85 million evangelical Christians in this world, in this country, in this country. If we just all took on the suffering of one person, foster kids, people in poverty, the incarcerated, the addicted, people in nursing homes, violent crimes, HIV, refugees, we would only need 73 million Christians. I say we still have 12 million that can make excuses, right? Just go take on the suffering of another person. I've yet to reconcile how the Christian church has responded to this pandemic. I'm just in grief over it. We spent all of our time debating masks and whether we were legally allowed to be gathered. People were dying. People needed help. People needed relationship. People needed conversation. But we just weren't worried about preserving ourselves in our way of life. At Providence, Covenant Partnership says we are committed to doing this and we're doing it together. And maybe it's uh, not foster care for you. Maybe it's like Jenny Fuddle. She's started a nonprofit for sex trafficking to help victims. Yeah. And I could go on and on because honestly, the greatest joy the last 15 years has been doing it with you guys because you have set some examples. I think of the Hides, their home is a, uh, what do you guys call that? The Park Hill Parish? Park Hill Parsonage, right? <laughs> I always meet somebody else who's living with the Hides and I'm like, that house must be endless, you know? Giving up the castle in American culture to love other people. I want no part of the Christian message which does not call me to be all in. 
that doesn't go to the redemptive edge, that plays it safe, that requires no sacrifice, that takes no money from me, that requires less of me than the best I have to give, when my duty is to bear a cross. Jesus does not call disciples to himself to make their lives easy and prosperous. He wants to make your life impactful. I read this in my devotions. In what way is history right now providing you an opportunity to make a significant contribution to your world? In what way is history right now providing you an opportunity to make a significant contribution to your world? So there is the deny and bear your cross piece of this. But I also want to say this. Jesus says that when you do it, you will save your life. And there's definitely an eternal aspect to that. But I like what Juan said. We started Providence to save our own souls. That's what he's talking about is this verse here. We needed a different way of living our life. That's where our tagline says, live different. Jesus came to give us an abundant life now, not just in eternity. I just think of the way love for neighbor has transformed our lives. I was taking a walk with my wife yesterday. I said, how different do we view the world than we did 15 years ago? It has transformed our view of our money. We give more away than we ever have in our life. The view of our home. I don't know how many people have lived with us over the years. And Jen came to me last week and said, hey, we've got a leader in the Cross Purpose program. And her, her dad's really tough on her and, and is just beating her down and like, can we provide a place? It was like, this is a short conversation, right? Our view of the privilege that we've been giving, that we've been given that God can actually use all that we have to advocate for the oppressed. Our kids, I think of, the, of our children and the outlook they have on the world. I'm so glad we didn't stay, even though it was scary to go to do something we didn't know how to do. But it gave us an outlet to grow and to be formed because in the fight for justice, I did not realize this, but the people that I was supposedly helping began pouring medicine into my own heart because I saw contented people in the middle of suffering. That was a rebuke to me. I saw grateful people. I saw people with deep spiritual strength. I mean, we've had one of our a congregation that's uh, come over from Africa and uh, he met with me two Sundays ago and he said, hey, can I have the church building from Friday night to Sunday morning? Because uh, I want to fast. I want to do it a couple times a year. And can I just uh, live in one of the rooms? Because I don't want to be distracted by anything in the outside world. And I'm like, of course, right? But you know what I do when I get back in my truck? Oh, dear Lord, my spirituality sucks. You know, I, I haven't fasted that long in a long time. You know why? Uh, but look at this beautiful picture that the oppressed, the Bible says, God has he chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith toward him, that we ought to sit at our feet and learn what it's like to be spiritually strong from them. So loving your neighbor isn't just about, uh, I think people feel this is a checkbox in the church. Oh, we're going to go help somebody in need. This is our yearly service thing. No, it's actually your means of spiritual formation to be formed into the image of Jesus. It will push on everything in your life, these American values that are toxic to the faith. Justice work will do it. So Jesus says, carry your cross. I actually asked Hudson if he would take this cross. This cross was actually built by the Camerons back in the early days. We bought this building over on 30th and Franklin. And uh, 
Somebody thought our church building ought to have a cross in it, and so they built this cross, but then it was too big to put in the building. So it hung on the outside of the sea for 10 years, and then when we sold it, you can just say right there. Yeah, you can hold it right there, yeah. <laughs> when we sold it, uh, this was laying in the back alley, and we lived like four houses down from the sea building, and I was like, man, I just can't let that cross go. So it's been sitting in our backyard now for the last uh, two and a half years. But... I bring it here to give an illustration that that's not comfortable, right, Hud? Yep. <laughs> keep keep holding it. Don't let it touch the ground, okay? <laughs> it's going to take a crucified church to bring a crucified Christ before the eyes of the world. People who will voluntarily take on suffering. This is where actually we get to know Christ the most. And when you are part of the church, this is the beauty of doing it together. The church is your safety net, right? The church is the group that, can, that we can do it together. We can share the load, right? We ought to be the riskiest people in the world in justice journeys. In the developed world with little to no persecution, we are free to radically love our neighbors. You're not going to be martyred for your faith, folks. So pick up another way to deny yourself and take up your cross. And actually at Providence, we have, we have a beautiful nonprofit here, but we actually don't even care how you do it, just that you do it. And bring a couple of people along with you. I, I use this picture because it was Jesus himself who carried his cross up Golgotha. And I don't think any picture in the Bible goes to waste. But do you remember what happened on the pathway on the way to Calvary? What happened? He couldn't carry it. Jesus couldn't carry his cross. And what did he need? He needed somebody to come in and help him carry it. This is the beauty of community. Right? That community comes in, champ, champ and, and Spurge, come help your brother. And, it, and it, I think it's a beautiful picture of Jesus' humanity, first of all. Why did the Holy Spirit put this in the Scripture? Because he was fully human, folks. He, he, and he basically said, I'm going to take on the suffering of the world on my way to Calvary. And then we have this beautiful picture of his full humanity and needing the body to help him out in his moment of need. And I give those a picture, say, in the church... When you actually walk into the center of justice, it is a crucible. But we ought to gather around each other. When people take on justice missions, we ought to come around and be the biggest support group they could ever possibly imagine. If someone's going to adopt a kid out of foster care, we ought to be the most loving community around them. If somebody's going to go to the Capitol and fight to uh, help uh, free some of the incarcerated that are unjustly incarcerated, we ought to pack the legislature, right? If somebody's trying to do something to help people in poverty, we ought, to, we ought to jump on their bandwagon and help them out. If someone's starting a sex trafficking nonprofit, we ought to be there and get around them. We want to start a recovery group here on Friday nights. Somebody ought to come around that team that's already volunteered and help with that. And Jesus didn't stop. He went all the way to the cross. This was the ultimate love of neighbor. You know, that last part of that passage is this. When Jesus comes in all of his glory, he will repay those. 
So we, we think about what it would it be like to say for the rest of my life, I'm not going to die with toxic assets. I'm getting rid of all my Uno cards. It's all out there. And that when Jesus comes back in all of his glory, he repays you for what you've done. But that's what faith is, right? Faith actually believes that's going to happen, and it gives me the energy, even when somebody I cannot see. Francois de Fenelon, a 17th century priest, there was the Huguenot conflicts, and there was a struggling priest, and he wrote these words to them. He goes, in the middle of this conflict, you have the opportunity to experience difficult trials, do not lose the slightest opportunity to embrace the cross. Learn to suffer with simplicity and a heart full of love. And if you do, you will not only be happy in spite of the cross, but because of it. Love is pleased to suffer for the well-beloved. The cross which conforms you into his image is a consoling bond of love between you and him. If you really want to know Jesus, you can go to Spotify and get a worship channel. That's good. You can actually come and you can pray. You can actually come and assemble with the people and you can join a, a community group. But if you actually really want to actually take identity all the way, pick up a cross. And you will feel the bond of love between you and our Lord. We follow a man who went to the cross and said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And in doing that, you will find life. The last 15 years have been a phenomenal journey. I wouldn't give up or I wouldn't change anything because I feel like I've been able to identify with my Lord and I'm actually more burdened than I was 15 years ago. 15 years ago, I don't think I understood justice. I don't think I saw the oppressed. I said, now I've seen it and I'm actually more burdened. I actually think the church can do more than it ever has ever right now. And if there's ever a time where the church needs to stand up, I think it's now. Let's pray. Dear, dear Jesus, we thank you for the cross which has redeemed us. And we thank you that you have actually given us a calling and a mission in life that we don't have to accumulate monopoly cards and just take, take, take from this world. But Lord, you have given us a mission to give, to give ourselves our energy to love our neighbor. And we do it, Lord, in your power. So Lord, I just pray in this room. I pray that your spirit would be calling people to, to give their lives in the service and the suffering of others for the propagation of your gospel, whether it's as a missionary, to take on justice by helping a neighbor in need, to promote advocacy, to change policy so that the marginalized can rejoice and be happy. Whatever it is, God, I just pray your spirit touches people. And that, Lord, out of this will be an explosion of people in our city who, who when, when the city looks at them, would say they look like Jesus. We want that for our lives. So strengthen our hands. We ask this in your name. Amen.